grade, I was really into roller skating. Um, I've repented since. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a strange phase. Um, but I, I learned um, through roller skating, I learned about pottery. You see, my friend had a, um, his parents were in the pottery business. They would make these molds and paint them and, um, and sell them at the flea market. And uh, apparently that they made pretty good money doing this. And, um, and so they would uh, dry the clay there in their driveway, like after they painted it. And so I was roller skating in their driveway around the pottery, as you do. And, uh, and there's a car, so there's a car here, and I go like in front of the car, and that's where all the pottery is, and I didn't see it because the car. And so I did one of these, you know, and pretty much destroyed like 15 pieces of pottery. Uh, it just shattered, you know? Um, and that's when I realized that clay, once it has been hardened, you can't put it back together, you know, right after you break it. And so you have this, um, throughout the Bible, uh, you hear God referred to as the potter and we're the clay. And, and then you have these warnings throughout Scripture. Do not let your heart become hardened, all right? God wants us to be malleable. He wants us to, to be able to shape our hearts. And if it becomes hardened, um, then he's not able to do that. And so when the Spirit um, comes and tries to lead us in a new direction, if, the, if the, your heart is hardened, it doesn't work out too well. <laughs> they, they shatter into lots of pieces. I should have worn safety goggles. This ended up later here. Uh, but if your heart is still, hasn't been put through the furnace, hasn't been, uh, and, and I made this one. I'm very proud of my work. Um, but, but trust me, God is a more capable potter. You can trust him with your heart more than you can trust me to make you a pot. Um, but um, while your heart is still malleable, God can shape it and, and do what he will with it. And, and that's what he wants. And, and so that's why throughout scripture there's, these warnings, do not harden your heart, or you'll end up like that. But see, if your heart is soft, you still, you know, it, it'll hurt, you know. <laughs> God, will, God will lead you and shape you, um, and, and there will be pain, but it's still malleable, and he can still shape you. Now, don't get me wrong, God is an expert at picking up the pieces. You know, if this is you, if you've been shattered, God is an expert at putting things back together. But um, the warning to us is to keep our hearts soft. I'm going to do that again because that's fun. That's just awesome. Okay. Um, uh, will you pray with me? Uh, dear God, I thank you for um, who you are, how you made us, uh, who you've created us to be. And I just pray that um, today that you would uh, allow your message to be heard, that you would open up our hearts and our ears to your word. God, that you would get me out of the way and that your uh, message would be spoken. So God, I pray that the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth will be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 2, we're, um, it's this uh, Jesus turns water into wine miracle, his first miraculous sign in the book of John. And, uh, and so you have this story. There's a, there's a wedding in Cana. I'm still finding pieces of broken pot. Uh, there's, still, there's this wedding going on in Cana, and Jesus and his mom show up, and Jesus and his disciples are there. And um, apparently they run out of wine, and Mary says, uh, says uh, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And he says, don't bother me with this. And she says, you're going to do it anyway because I'm your mom, <laughs> right? And she says, just do what he says. And so he says, okay, uh, fill up these, these big jars full of water. And they did. They listened to Jesus, which is a good thing to do. Um, they filled these up and they, they drew some out in a cup and gave it to the master of the banquet. And when the master of the banquet tasted it at some point between here and there, uh, the water had been turned into wine. And he tasted it and he's like, this is the best wine Usually, we don't bring out the best wine at the end, but we bring it out first, and then the cheaper stuff later. And so, so, so there we have this story, uh, this, this first miraculous sign. 
of Jesus. And two weeks ago, we set the stage uh, for this miracle. We looked at a couple of layers of meaning that we can find in this miracle. We looked at the setting. It took place at a wedding. We talked about uh, first century Jewish weddings, and, and they were a week-long celebration. Uh, they were a picture of something much bigger than just this man and this woman. They were a picture of God and his people. When God led them out of Egypt, it was like a wedding. And so, and so this wedding is a picture of God and man, and wedding is a picture of this couple. And then uh, we looked at wine. And throughout Scripture, whenever wine is, is mentioned, uh, people would think about heaven. Because wine represented God's shalom, God's peace, God's blessing. And so in, in, the, in the picture of wine, you have this picture of, of the economy of heaven. All right? and, and Jesus economics is what we talked about two weeks ago. And so in this miracle, you have all these layers of different meanings. So you have the setting, you have the substance of wine. Uh, we talked about the volume, just the abundance of wine that Jesus made on that day. Uh, we talked about that town, Cana, had about two to 300 people, and Jesus made enough wine to serve 6,000 people. And so we, we talked about how all of these things, that this wedding and this, uh, um, this wine and this abundance, all of these things are pointing to who Jesus is and how he reveals himself through this first miracle. So you have um, the wedding between God and man. Jesus says, I come to do that, to make that a reality. Uh, the, the wine, God says, I am God's blessing. And this abundance that I offer, I offer you uh, abundant life. So all of these layers of this miracle, uh, we're going to look at some more layers uh, today. First one I want to talk about is the offensive nature of this miracle. Um, in our culture, we might be uh, offended at, at what Jesus did. I mean, if we think about it, what did Jesus really do? He, he made sure that a bunch of drunk people could stay drunk. You know, he, he made sure that they could maintain their buzz. There was, uh, and so here, here's me, I'm a youth minister, and I'm thinking, how do I teach this to high schoolers? Jesus, you're kind of working against me here. Um, but, but let's put this in, in modern terms. If we say, here's Jesus, a youth minister, he's got his youth group with him, right, his disciples, um, and he takes them to this wedding, not the worst youth trip. You know, he can teach them about weddings and uh, about God at this place and about love. And so he takes them there, and there's... There's lots of drinking going on. Um, maybe not so good anymore. And then Jesus, the youth minister, makes way more wine than needed. And I don't know if Jesus was checking IDs or anything. Like, I don't know if everybody was of legal drinking age at this party. Um, I don't know if his disciples were at that time. Um, so, so here's Jesus. And, and so I want you to remember this. Next time your youth minister does something outrageous, okay, that Jesus did some pretty outrageous things with his youth group, too. Okay. So, and here... So, um, so here's Jesus doing this miracle. That, that it's offensive, right? I mean, there is drunkenness going on, and now there's more drunkenness thanks to Jesus. And so, um, and so in our culture, that's maybe one way we would be offended by this miracle. But in that culture, they would have been offended, and probably more offended, uh, but for different reasons. The reason um, this first century Jewish culture would have been offended uh, by this miracle was the way in which he went about doing the miracle. He used these jars, these huge stone jars. And John makes sure that we know which jars these are. These are the jars used for ceremonial washing. And so these jars represent a much bigger picture. Uh, these jars represent the Jewish culture and the way um, Jews uh, related to God. And I didn't have to use these, these huge stone jars. He could have used probably lying around where a lot of these wine containers called wine emporae. 
Now, if you look at wine, in the history of wine at this time, there were wine skins, which would have been like what you would have at your house to feed your household. Um, and then you had these, which we, we would have probably found at this party to serve a much, a much uh, bigger group of people. And you can see they fit together, kind of like the zipper. Uh, they fit together for transportation and, and moving them about. And so these things are probably lying around uh, empty uh, because they've already been having this party for a few days now. And uh, Jesus could have said, fill those up with water, and then he could have turned it into wine. But he didn't. Right? He says, fill those up, those ceremonial jars. Now these jars, like I said, are, are a small part of a huge system of uh, Jewish regulations and religion. And so God, um, when God uh, led his people out of Egypt, he gave them these regulations, these laws to set them apart as his people. And so, um, so, so he set up the system of what to offer as a sacrifice, how to become ceremonially clean so that they could relate to him. And so when you in, want to enter into God's presence, you would have to purify yourself by going through all of these regulations. And now, uh, and so, so what Jesus did in, in making the water that was in those jars into wine, he mixed two things that shouldn't be mixed. This idea of, of not mixing things is, is called kosher. You've probably heard of that. In a kosher diet, you don't eat meat and dairy. You don't mix uh, milk plates with meat plates. You can't put those together. In other words, you can't eat cheeseburgers, okay? So you have, um, you have milk, and that represents life, okay? Life, like all animals need milk from their mothers when they're born to survive, right? All mammals. Um, and so, so you have milk, which represents life, and then you have the burger, which represents death. Something had to die so that you could eat that burger, and you don't mix the two together. That's like mixing death and life. And so, um, so that's why when you're kosher, you can't have cheeseburger, right? You can't mix the two. And so what Jesus did um, with these stone jars, stone jars for water, Good. Wine. Wine's good. But don't mix the two, right? Don't put the cheese on the burger, or you're mixing the two, and that is not good. That is not kosher. And so what happens here, when Jesus performs this miracle, um, he mixes the two, and everybody who partakes of that wine is now infected, all right, with a spiritual disease. They are now unclean because they have partaken in this un, uh, from something that wasn't kosher. Right? They, they drank this wine that was supposed to be uh, from jars that were only used for this sacred, holy purpose. These jars were sacred, right? And this wine was not. And so when you mix the two, you, you get the spiritual disease, tuma, which means unclean or impure. And so you have these, these jars, and, and they're pretty big, and, uh, but they're, they're set aside for that sacred purpose. And so what Jesus is doing, he specifically chooses those jars. He didn't have to. And so... If we step into their shoes, if, if we step into that, that Jewish culture, this is stepping on our, on our toes, on our religious tradition, our regulations. Jesus, uh, what is Jesus doing here, right? He's using uh, this symbol, and, he is, and he's pointing them to him. Right? He's saying, yeah, that, that ceremony, that's good, but this is pointing to me. And so he takes that, that ceremony... And he, and he leads them out of that, right? He, he offers them this new covenant. And when he brings about a new covenant, the old one has to adapt. It has to change. It has to um, work its way into the new covenant. And so for this Jewish audience, the things that they once held sacred are replaced by Jesus. So Jesus is kind of saying, those were good, but we're not going to use those for that anymore. This, this ceremony is now a celebration. It's kind of like Back to the Future. Have you seen Back to the Future? The original, Back to the Future 1. Uh, you know, it's based on a true story. 
where, um, I'm just kidding. Uh, so he builds this time machine, and how fast does the time machine have to go? 88 miles an hour. And how many, how many watts of electricity does it? 1.21 gigawatts. Good job. Good job, my ladies, friends. Um, so we're, um, and then there's a scene at the end of the movie. Let's, let's check it out. cleansing, where we're going, we don't need those anymore, right? We're, we're going to use these for celebration. Where, where I am leading you, I'm leading you into a new covenant of something new. Now the problem comes when religions are rigid, right? When religions get hard and they're not able to take the change that Jesus comes to bring. Alright, so religions can get rigid. And, uh, and it's good to preserve that which came and, and was good, and, and we, we hold on to that, right? Uh, but at some point, it becomes something else. If we keep it the same for too long, we're going to miss what God has in store for us. Where, where this came from, it's leading us somewhere. And so what made this, this religion, this thing good in the first place, was, was that it was fresh and something new from God. And if we weren't open to it when God shared it with us the first time, we would have missed it. And if we're not open to, to change up our hearts are hard now, we're going to miss where it's leading. We're going to miss the next right step that the Spirit wants to lead us on. All right, this can happen with religions, but it can also happen to our own heart, our own soul, right? If it doesn't bend, it breaks. Hearts can get hardened, and it won't bend to the Spirit's guidance anymore. After the resurrection, one of the first people to see Jesus was Mary in the garden. And he, uh, and he reveals himself to her. He says she didn't recognize him until he said, Mary. And then she's like, my Lord. And she embraces him. And what does he say? He says, don't cling to me. I've got to keep moving. I haven't gone back to the Father yet. What he's saying is there's this whole new way to relate to me that you're going to have to learn. I'm going to send the Spirit, and there's no more clinging to me. There's no more sitting with me and eating with me. There's the Spirit, and there's going to be this whole new way that you're going to have to learn to follow me. So Jesus can't be bound by our boxes, right? Just when we think we have Jesus, just when we think we've clung on to him, he says, Garrett, you're going to have to let go. We've got to move forward. We've got to keep moving. You know, I'm tired sometimes because he does. He, he keeps moving. You know, I, I've come to a place, I've done it throughout my walk with him, where I think this is a good place. Let's, let's stay here. Let's stop. You know, and, and, I've, and I found a good place to rest for the night. And then, I, and then I fall behind and I lose my way and he keeps moving on. He keeps moving us forward. He keeps taking us where we are. And, and he might stay still, you know, that when, when at that first stage of the relationship when you're getting to know him. Uh, but once you choose to follow him and he says, follow me, there he goes. You better follow him. He doesn't stay there. He keeps going. Sometimes I get comfortable and I want to stay. Right? I want to stay in my own comfort. And sometimes, sometimes I do, and my ears, they stop, they stop hearing the Spirit's voice saying, come on, get up. It's time to keep moving. And Jesus continues to pull me forward. 
So it's important not to get comfortable. It's important not to let your heart get hardened. Can you stand up with me? I want you to stretch out. All right, we need to do some stretches. Uh, I went to the gym this week, and so I'm a little sore. Uh, like, I went to the gym once in like a year. So. <laughs> That's probably the last time I go over the next year. So um, let's stretch it out. This, this is what I used to do in baseball. You take your right arm across your body and hold it with your left arm like this. It stretches out this little muscle right here, this shoulder. And okay, let's stretch out and let's do the other one. There we go. All right, all right, we're getting stressed. See, it's good for our muscles to get stressed out. You can have a seat. I just wanted you to get this idea that it's, it's not good if we're not stretched out, right? And what Jesus does here with these stone jars, he affirms them, right? He doesn't, say, he doesn't condemn them and say, these are bad, get rid of them and, and tear them to bits. He, he, says, he says, these are good, but we're going to use them in a different way. He's very uh, creative in the way that he offends, yet he doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, condemn and so he uses this and the way what he's bringing them to, right? And Jesus keeps doing this kind of thing with us. And he, he keeps breaking the rules. He keeps offending us. And we have to be flexible enough to follow him. Right? He, he offends us with that next right step. He says, I know. I know that's not part of your tradition. I know that's not part of the, the religious uh, system that, that you're used to. But I'm bringing you forward and where I'm taking you, we don't need robes anymore. We don't need clay jars for ceremonial cleansing anymore. And Jesus keeps ignoring these rules like fasting twice a week. And the religious leader says, you're supposed to fast twice a week. How come you're not doing that? And he's like, because I'm here. It's a celebration. Right? And he offends us by dining with sinners. The question is, is your soul... Is your heart flexible enough to follow this Jesus? Right? Is your heart, is your heart hard? Or, you, or is it still able to bend to the Spirit's leadership? Because the Spirit will lead you into places that you once thought were forbidden. And he will take you on journeys that offend your tradition and your religion. Now, the book of John was written a little later than the other Gospels. And the other Gospels... Uh, they're called the synoptic gospels. They're a lot like each other. They tell the same stories. There's a lot of the same language. Now, John was written, uh, and, and those three were written pri primarily to a Jewish audience. Now, John, he writes in a way that's to Jews, but it's also uh, to a larger, broader audience. And so when he writes, he uses these pictures that can speak both to a Jewish audience and to uh, a non-Jewish audience. And so when he writes, he has help, right? He has the Holy Spirit. And this is, it's brilliant because he includes these pictures that the culture around him would pick up on. Like when we, we, we studied the term logos from John chapter 1, it's like in the beginning was the word. The word word was in Greek logos. And, uh, and that word isn't a Jewish idea. It's not, it's not familiar to Jewish thought. What it was was a Greek idea, very popular in the Greek religion of that time. Logos was this idea uh, of the creative life force that created, created everything which sounds to us like our creator, right? That's, that's God. Um, and so what John did when he said, the word became flesh, he was talking to the Greeks saying, that Logos thing that you guys have this idea of, that's Jesus. And so he pulls them uh, forward into something new. He, he takes where they started and pulls them forward into what the truth is. And so um, he does the same thing with our story today, our water into wine story. Um, the Greeks were polytheistic, okay, and they had, so they had many gods. 
And what they would do is, if they needed something, they would go to a certain God, uh, the God that would provide them with whatever it was they were looking for. And they would have to worship that God in the way that God liked to be worshipped. And so each of these gods had this way that they liked to be worshipped. One God um, liked for their worshippers to dig a pit. And so you'd dig a pit and then put a grave over the pit and you, you would get in the pit. And then they would have a bull come and stand on top of the grave and they would slaughter the bull and you would be drenched in the bull's blood. And that's the way that God liked to be worshipped. Yeah, we don't do that. Okay. Um, I'm glad we don't. Um, the, uh, another God that I found rather um, scary um, liked to be worshipped by... Um, by her, by, their worshippers would, would hurt themselves. So there would be a day full of people beating themselves with chains and cutting themselves with knives. And, um, and at the end of the day, as their final act of worship, they would castrate themselves and place it on the altar. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Uh, so um, so there's this, this is how these gods liked to be worshipped. Um, so there was one god, a very popular god, uh, probably the most popular god at this time. Uh, his name was Dionysus. He was the god of wine and festivities, and he would grant you with joy and love and ecstasy and fertility, whether you needed uh, your, a good crop or if you needed children. And the god, uh, so basically this was the god of partying, <laughs> and the way he liked to be worshipped uh, was for people to get really, really drunk off of wine, and then they would have random, indiscriminate, casual relations with each other, um, and then... <laughs> is why this God was popular, apparently. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we do this. I'm just telling you about this God. You can relax. Um, so, but it sounds like more of a lust fest. They would call these love fests for this God, but it was more of a lust fest. And, and that's what this God did. Now, to demonstrate his power and his presence, Dionysus would do a miracle each year. The priests of Dionysus would take water into the temple and fill up these huge stone jars full of water. And they would leave them overnight. And they would come back in the morning, and the water had been turned into? Exactly. So Dionysus, his trademark miracle, turning water into wine. And so, so when the water had been turned into wine, that was a sign that Dionysus was here, uh, and he was powerful, and it was time to start the party. Now Jesus steals this guy's trademark, right? He turns water into wine, and the Greeks would have caught on to this. Except Jesus changes one small thing. Jesus does this miracle at a wedding, celebrating love, not lust, celebrating the union of souls, celebrating the relationship between God and man. And he announces uh, to those familiar with this God, he says, what you think you need from that God, I have to offer. What you think you need from him, I am the true abundant life. So he takes something that is a symbol and he says, that is pointing to me. I am the fulfillment of that symbol. And so there's this challenge to the Jews. He says, I am the fulfillment of this ceremony, these regulations, these laws, the way the temple is set up. All of those things, they're about me. And to the Greeks, this God that you think is going to provide you with these things, I am the one true God. And so there's this challenge to the Jews, to the Greeks. There's this challenge to us. Maybe today you are holding on to some tradition, some religion, some ceremony that Jesus has left behind long ago. Maybe you need to follow him. Or maybe you're trusting in a false god. Or maybe you're trusting in uh, something else to bring you joy. Maybe it's money or success or pride or control. So you have these, these challenges. 
What, what is it that you need to let go of? What is it that you need to follow Jesus in? And then there's this underlying example that Jesus says over and over again in the book of John, his ability to talk to two polarized groups. These groups are, are polar opposites. Okay, you have the Jews worshiping one God, the polytheistic Greeks. And Jesus speaks to both of them with one picture. And Jesus, um, a lot of the times, uh, I, I think our culture is a lot like this. We, we live in a culture of polarities. You're either on one side or the other. And, um, and Jesus comes and, and he says, he offers us a new way, right? You don't have to join that side. You don't have to join this side. You don't have to find yourself anywhere on the spectrum because I offer this new way. Right? Jesus offers us, you don't have to join this way, and you don't have to join this way. I'm offering a third way. And maybe this is one of my pet peeves, but we are followers of Christ, first and foremost. All right, We're not right or left, or American or non-American, or English speakers or non-English speakers. And when we, when we put ourselves in one of those categories and we view the other side as deluded and ignorant and messed up, then we're not first and foremost Christ followers because we're to view them as loved by God, children of God, who Jesus came and shined his light on them. And so if we find ourselves in one of those situations, we need to step back and find that third way that Jesus came to show us. He offers this third way in that culture of their polarities, and he offers it to us in our culture of polarities. Right? He, comes, he comes to both groups, both groups who thinks the other one is crazy, and he starts where you are, and he pulls you forward into something that's not another one of those positions, but something new, a new creation, a new life, this third way based on love, confession, and compassion. And I think if we look at our lives, it won't be very hard to find um, somebody that we're at odds with, somebody that we kind of look at as they're so wrong, so messed up, so backwards. But I think if we see Jesus shining his light on both of these groups, both of these polar opposites, we need to do the same thing. We need to be able to see them in the light of Jesus. All right, maybe it's a, maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's an ex-best friend. Maybe it's somebody who you've had a feud with for a long time. Maybe it's those punk kids or those old people. Whatever it is, we, we find ourselves and we, and we put ourselves in one category, put them in another category. And Jesus says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. All of these categories that we divide ourselves up in, I've come, and now they're all one in Christ. So there's all these layers to this miracle, right? The wedding, the wine, the volume, the vehicle that he used, the ceremonial jars, this stolen trademark from a false god and the idea that you can speak to two different groups with one message and then there's this other thing i want to i want to kind of close out with it's this interaction between jesus and his mother right at the beginning of this miracle uh, jesus uh, is there and, and his mother says they've run out of wine and he and he kind of answers in a way that doesn't seem like he's answering her question or her uh, remark, he says, woman, my time has not yet come. And that doesn't make much sense. Right? That, doesn't, that doesn't really answer the no wine question. He, um, he was at a wedding. And when we're at a wedding, weddings get you thinking you know, about, about life, especially if you're a single uh, person. You think about uh, 
your future wedding, your future spouse, your future married life. So I wonder what Jesus was thinking about this day at this wedding. You see, he had a wedding coming up. This marriage between God and man that he was going to make a reality. And he had to provide wine at that wedding on that day. That wine was his blood. So when he responded to his mother, woman, my time has not yet come. I wonder if his mind was so far off that maybe you were on his mind right then. So when he responds to her, woman, maybe he was thinking, not that this is the woman that brought me into this world, but this is the wo a woman that I have to die for. So maybe, maybe he could have said, woman, or man, or Garrett, or your name. My time has not yet come. See, I, I, I still have to turn water into wine before I can turn wine into blood. So in our story on this day, his, his time had not yet come. But his time did finally come. And he did go to that altar. And he did lay down his life, shed his blood for you. So in so our story, his time had not yet come. But now, his time has come in that time. That time was your time. That was you. That was your time. That time appointed for him before the beginning of time. That time was your time. And that time is still right now. And if your heart is hard, you'll miss it. Okay? I want you to stand with me. We're going to sing, and, uh, and I'm going to offer this invitation. And we offer this invitation. You can come and talk. Uh, to anyone on the leadership, you can come and, uh, and pray with me and we can talk about what it means to follow Jesus. So Jesus, this time had not yet come. But that time, it has come. And that time is your time.